Well, Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to read two verses from Isaiah 50, and then we're going to jump right into verse 35 here, and you'll see the connection. From Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And then Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, speaking of Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. This evening, as we look at this passage, we're going to consider the priorities of Christ. The priorities of Christ is the title of the message tonight. And the passage in Isaiah 50 of Christ awaking morning by morning to be instructed by his Father, we have a fulfillment right where we started as Christ got up while it was dark and went to pray as he ministered here on this earth. Now at first glance, combining these two accounts, Peter looking for Christ and Christ's cleansing of the leper uh, might seem a bit strange. So let me take a little bit of time to explain the connection between what's happening in these accounts. And I think it'll help us grasp the significance and the thrust of this passage this evening. As Mark has introduced Christ's ministry, beginning in chapter 1, verse 16, he summarized Christ's ministry in verses 14 and 15. And then he began to record Christ's ministry. He does so in, in doublets. You have Jesus calling two sets of brothers by the Sea of Galilee. And then in verses 21 through 34, 
We have an account of Jesus in the synagogue and an account of Jesus in Simon's house, and they're taking place on the same day. So two, two accounts, two events, but taking place on the same day, and there was an emphasis in that passage on the fact that Jesus has authority everywhere over all people at all times. And so we saw him in a public place of worship. We saw him in a private home dealing with a demon, dealing with many demons, dealing with a disease, dealing with many diseases. Wherever Jesus is, he has authority because he is the Son of God. And so when we come to this passage, we again have, have two records, but there's a connecting, a couple of connecting elements in this passage. In verse 35, we're told that while it was still dark, he went out to a desolate place. And at the end of this passage, in verse 45, again we're told he went out, this time it's speaking about the leper that was cleansed, and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the town, but was out in desolate places. So the language here is, is giving us a connection. Jesus begins and ends in desolate places. It's the same word, actually, that is translated wilderness in verses, um, back in verse 12, where Jesus went to and, and was tempted by the devil. But there's another connecting point in that these accounts record two requests that were made to Jesus. Simon is looking for Jesus, and, and we'll see what's behind that, what is motivating him searching Jesus out. And then the leper, of course, comes to Jesus and asks to be clean, to be made clean. So there are two requests that are bookended by Jesus ending up in desolate places. And when we consider the passage in the broader context Christ is experiencing rising popularity for his ministry. Back in verse 28, after he confronted the unclean spirit, it says, Mark records, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And then in verse 33, that evening as he was at Simon's house, the whole city was gathered together at the door. And in this passage, in verse 37, when they found Jesus, they said, everyone is looking for you. And at the end of the passage, we're told that people were coming to him from every quarter. So there's a rising popularity, and with that came demands. The demands of the masses for Christ. And we're going to find in chapter 2 through the first part of chapter 3 that there's also looming controversy. The next five accounts beginning in chapter 2 record questions of, for Jesus from the religious leaders. They begin to question his ministry. And in each account, you'll find a question. The first four accounts the religious leaders are questioning Jesus, and then Jesus turns around in the first part of chapter 3 and, and asks them a question that they can't answer, and 
the end of that passage, they go out and plot to take his life. And so there's, there's this, this tension of, of a growing popularity and looming controversy surrounding Jesus' ministry. And this passage emphasizes for us the fact that Jesus maintained a focus and a priority in the midst of rising popularity, in the midst of looming controversy, he maintained a focus on doing his Father's will. In Galatians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul summarizes why Jesus came to the earth. He came to the earth to do the Father's will and redeem us, save us from our sins, deliver us from the present evil age. And and as accomplishment of the Father's will for redemption, he daily accomplished the Father's will while he was on this earth. And we have this emphasized for us in the record in the passage this evening. Mark establishes the trajectory of Christ's ministry in the midst of competing priorities. And the competing agendas of the first century correspond to the competing agendas of the church today. So a correct assessment of Christ's earthly ministry sets a proper trajectory for us to understand and, and, to, and to be certain and confident in the, for the priorities of the church today. The demand that churches fulfill social imperatives and actively pursue political relevance is rooted in nothing less than a false gospel that flows from a false Christ. And so by looking at Christ as recorded in the Scriptures, we have, we have clarity of His purposes, and therefore, as the church, which is the body of Christ, we have clarity and confidence in carrying out His purposes today as we anticipate and await His return. And even on a personal level, we, we all at times disappoint, or struggle with disappointment in the Christian life, things aren't working out maybe as we anticipated or as we would like. And often the struggle, the struggle in that disappointment and is related to a faulty expectation of life in Christ. And so as we clar- consider Christ, we, we have clarified for us the grand and unchanging purposes for the church and for those in Christ, the ones that make up the church. And it comforts us. It comforts those who are longing to please Christ, yet sometimes feeling perhaps the pressures of being trapped by cultural demands or disappointments in life. Christ brings clarity as He, with perfect clarity, follows His Father's will. So we'll answer three clarifying questions this evening from this passage. The first will be, why did Christ come? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? 
What, did Je- what does Jesus do? And who does Jesus obey? Why did Jesus come? What does Jesus do? And who does Jesus obey? So let's first answer this question from verses 35 through 39. Why did Jesus come? We have an answer in this passage. And let's drop into the middle of the passage where as Jesus is praying, we see some confusion about this question. The question is, why did Jesus come? And and there's some confusion as Simon, verse 36, and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, why are they searching for him? Well, back in verse 34, so many had come to Simon's house and he had healed the many who were sick with various de- diseases and cast out many demons, right? So, so there was all kinds of wonderful things happening and, and then they woke up in the morning and Jesus wasn't there and they want to find him because there's more healing that needs to be done. There's more demons that need to be cast out. And in fact, the word that we have in verse 36 describing what Simon and those who were with him are doing, they searched for him, that that word actually carries with it a connotation of hunting something down or trying to impose an agenda on someone. The, the root is the same word that we find translated often in scriptures to persecute. So finding someone, hunting them down to persecute, and, and you have that idea of, of trying to run down Christ so that he would continue to fulfill the expectations of the masses. That's why they're searching for him. They, they want him to continue cultivating a popular ministry of healing that very well might have had some political agenda to it as well. I mean, if this is the Messiah, he's going to ultimately free us from Rome. And what better way to generate popularity than by healing people and casting out demons? We're just going to have this whole rising up and and our nation is going to be restored to us, right? This this is the thinking of, of the Jewish mind. And so what we have here as Simon and those who are with him are searching for him and, and saying to him, hey, everyone, all are looking for you. This is an ideal place for Jesus to institute a priority of meeting felt needs. I mean, that's what everybody wants. They've searched him down to, come, to bring him back. And in fact, in Luke chapter uh, 4, and verse 42, in the parallel account that Luke gives us, Luke records the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving him. They have an agenda. They want Jesus to stay. They're seeking to impose their desires on Christ. And all through Christ's ministry, Jesus faced this repeatedly. Another time where this happened is in John chapter 6, after he had after he had fed the multitudes, he crossed the sea 
And the next day, everyone followed him over there. And listen to what he says in John 6 and verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And from that point on to the end of the chapter, he clarifies his mission with some hard teaching to the point that by the end of chapter 6, many of his disciples left him because they wanted their felt needs met. And that's not why Christ came. And how often it is, how easy it is for us to, to do the same thing if we're not careful. Right? Well, I, I want Jesus. Well, why do you want Jesus? I want him to fix my life. I just, you know, I, I want things to be better. I want to have a better life. That, that's the idea of what's taking place here is as Peter and those who are with him, they have an idea about what Christ should be doing. And so they're searching him out, they're hunting him down, and they're seeking to impose their will on Christ. There's confusion. Jesus performed miracles to authenticate his identity. In fact, in John again, in John chapter 20, at the end of that gospel, John says the reason that he recorded the miracles, the signs that he recorded was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So often the argument is raised, well, look at, look at what Jesus did. I mean, this is our paradigm for, for changing society. No. That was not Jesus' focus. Jesus' miracles were performed to authenticate his identity, and we see this in the clarification that Jesus gives. Remember, Jesus told Peter that he was going to make him a fisher of men? Well, here's lesson number one in man fishing. Know why Jesus came. And folks, this is, this is critical, isn't it? Because if we go out man fishing and say, hey, you know, just come to Jesus, try Jesus out, life will get better, and, and, and we're, we're presenting that kind of gospel, we're presenting a false Christ and a false gospel. And so we have a clarification from Jesus. Jesus clarifies his reason for coming in, in two ways in this passage. In verse 35, where the passage begins, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. At the beginning of the passage, we see Jesus exemplifying the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. And we're going to put both of these priorities together into a statement that answers our question, why did Jesus come? But we're building up to that. And the, the first thing that we see is that Christ exemplifies the priority of prayer. 
We could certainly spend much time on this. But notice Christ's intentionality. Prayer is something that happens with intentionality. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The time frame that early in the morning refers to here is likely somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. That's early. It's interesting that back in Isaiah 50, the testimony of the servant is that the Lord awakens me. And if it's between 3 and 6 a.m., I know I need the Lord's help. But that's the testimony of the servant. The Lord awakens me morning by morning to hear His Word. And so there, there's intentionality. He's, he's in a house where probably multiple generations of people live, and, and he rises early in the morning while it's still dark, and he goes out to a desolate place to fellowship with his Father. And of course, there's intimacy He got away from the crowds, and there he prayed. And when when the disciples asked Jesus, what does teach us to pray? How did he start? Our Father, who art in heaven. And the recorded prayer that we have of Christ in John 17, he constantly is addressing his Father. There's intimacy as he goes and fellowships with his Father. Father. In Luke 5.16, we find that this is a habitual practice of our Lord. Christ exemplifies the priority of prayer. And then in response to those who are hunting him down, in verse 38, he said to them, let us go on to the next town so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. An answer in response to the imposition of the will of Simon and the others on him, Christ explains the priority of preaching. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And if we go back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Remember that Mark's summary of Christ's ministry is that he went proclaiming the gospel of God. He was preaching the gospel of God. That's what summarizes the essence of Jesus' ministry. In the synagogue, he's teaching with authority. We're going to find in in chapter 2 and verse 2 that he was preaching the word to them. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he was teaching them this is, this is the central priority of Christ's ministry. He is proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God and the word of God. And again, he is performing miracles, but the miracles are subservient to the priority of preaching and simply authenticate the uniqueness of who Jesus is as the Son of God. 
But ultimately, it's the word of God that is superior to miracles and spiritual experiences. And this is absolutely critical. The word of God is superior to miracles and spiritual experiences. Turn over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. That's a strong statement to make. So let's look at a scripture that makes this abundantly clear from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And they've been separated, the rich man into hell and, the, and Lazarus who sat at his gate to paradise. And it's been established that there is no way for the rich man to experience relief. And so let's pick up in verse 27, Luke 16, verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Folks, the Word of God is superior to miracles and spiritual experiences, and that's what Jesus said. And and we see this repeatedly throughout the Gospels. Take, for instance, when Jesus did bring Lazarus forth. What did the religious leaders think about that? Did they think, oh, Jesus is indeed the Son of God? No, they said, you know what, we need to figure out a way to kill Lazarus again because he's making life hard for us, right? They witnessed someone rising and they still didn't believe because they didn't believe the Scriptures, that the Scriptures are about Christ. This Word of God is superior to miracles and spiritual experiences, and we won't turn here, but another passage would be 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 16 through 21 where Peter describes being on the mount of transfiguration and we're going to get to that in chapter 9 and after describing that he says but we have a more sure word of prophecy what you have in your laps what you have in your laps is what God has ordained to be the most powerful spiritual influence of, in the world, the Word of God. And we see Christ Himself giving priority to preaching. And this, of course, makes sense because Christ fulfills the prophetic office. He is the perfect prophet. He came to, and I'm quoting from Spurgeon's catechism, 
He came to fulfill the prophetic office by revealing to us the will of God for our salvation by His Word and by His Spirit. John chapter 1 and verse 18 says that Jesus is the exposition of God. So Jesus clarified the priority of prayer and of preaching and and as we bring this together then and answer the question, why did Jesus come? Jesus came to carry out a prayer-saturated ministry of proclamation. A prayer-saturated ministry of proclamation. And we're going to extend this to the ultimate outcome that would culminate in his death and resurrection to save sinners. Why did did he die? Well, it was because the people rejected his preaching. They did not want to repent for the forgiveness of their sins, and so they killed the one who was calling them to repentance. And by carrying out the Father's will, to preach. The culmination was the death and resurrection of Christ to save sinners. Jesus came to carry out a prayer-saturated ministry of proclamation that would culminate in His death and resurrection to save sinners. Now in verse 40, we're told a leper came to Him, imploring Him and kneeling, said to Him, if you will, you can make me clean. He gets a different answer. So we've established that Jesus came to proclaim the word of God. So why is he going to why does he heal this leper? Well, leprosy in scripture is a picture of sin. And Mark could have described how the preaching of Christ spiritually transforms people. But what he does is he takes an account from Christ's ministry of Christ healing a leper, and this becomes, while it is a real and true healing, a cleansing of a leper, it becomes, as John MacArthur says, an analogy of salvation. Or as Alexander McLaren titles his sermon on this passage, It's a parable in a miracle. It's a parable of salvation in a miracle of what Christ does. So we're answering the question now as we come to this passage, what does Jesus do? Why did He come? He came to preach and ultimately give Himself to redeem sinners. So what does Jesus do? And and we answer that here with an analogy in this passage. A leper comes to him. Leprosy, J.C. Ryle says, is a radical disease of the whole man. It's a living death whose cure was as difficult as raising the dead. And the nature of leprosy was a corruption of the whole person, the appearance, the nervous system, the immune system, even the internal organs and the bones. And because of the of of the easy contagiousness of leprosy, lepers were completely ostracized from every part of society. 
Leprosy serves as a physical representation of sin. It affected the whole person. Lepers would self-destroy because the more that the disease advances, the less its destructiveness is felt. Imagine as your your sense of feeling leaves, you you can't tell the the kind of destruction that, that you're doing to your body just by doing everyday task. And so a, a leper would, would literally just slowly disintegrate away. His flesh would just disintegrate away. It was a horrible and grotesque sickness and disease, probably more than what we could even really imagine today. And only cleansing, only cleansing truly restored a leper. A leper couldn't just get rehabilitation or therapy. He needed to be absolutely and completely made new, transformed, cleansed. And so as we think about this, uh, this disease, this leprosy as a representation of, of sin, th- think in terms of those standing guilty before a holy God in the same way that a leper can't be restored through just therapy and re- rehabilitation. There's no way for us to secure peace with rehab and therapy. We need transform. Sinners need transform. The only hope is to become an entirely new person, just like that was the only hope for a leper. And so this leper approaches Christ with humility and with complete subjection to his will out of the desperation of his condition. Look again at what he says. The leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you are able, you are powerful to make me clean. You see a contrast between Peter and those that were with him, don't we? They're trying to impose their will. And here the leper is imploring Christ and saying, if you will, you are able to make me clean. So how does Jesus respond? What does Jesus do? Well, from Jesus' response, we see that Jesus cares for sinners. Jesus cares for sinners. Moved with pity, verse 41, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now remember the repugnance of a, of a leper. Just the, the, the physical appearance, not to mention the disease. And, and I'm, I'm not making this up. I read this in commentaries written before 2020 that lepers had to maintain six feet distance from others. Unless it was a windy day, then they had to maintain a distance of 150 feet because of the fear of contagion. But he comes and Jesus is moved with pity and stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Jesus cares for sinners. Jesus ignored the cultural code 
of distancing in his care for this man. And he did not become a leper, but he cleansed the leper. What a picture this is of Christ becoming flesh that he might bear our iniquities. He became sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus cares for sinners, but Jesus is just not sympathetic. He cares for sinners, but he also cleanses sinners. I will be clean. And what do we find? Verse 42, And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. He was a new man. Immediately and completely restored. It's interesting that in this account, healed is conspicuously replaced with the word clean. Lepers didn't get healed. They were cleansed. Christ did not become like him, but he made the leper clean and whole. When we think about what is taking place here, this cleansing, this restoration, the lines from the hymn, Rock of Ages, come to mind. Foul, I to the fountain fly. I can't get those words out today. Foul to, foul to the fountain, fountain I fly. I'll just stop saying that line. You get the point. So I'm here. Why am I flying there? Wash me, Savior, or I die. And Jesus washes you. And he gives you life. He restores you and He cleanses you. He gives you His perfect righteousness. And so you have perfect standing with God for all eternity. Before we go to the next element here, we've seen that Jesus cares for sinners and Jesus cleanses sinners. And I would just like to appeal to you children who are here tonight and young people, Early in life, the devastation and the grotesqueness of sin is invisible to your perception. But it is there. And I want to urge you from what we're seeing of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You you before Christ, even though you haven't maybe experienced the devastation that sin brings and the grotesque consequences of sin in your life, if you have not turned to Jesus Christ, you are like this leper. And sin is eating away at your soul. And you need to turn to Christ. You need to bow to Christ. You need to throw yourself down at the feet of Christ upon his mercy and say, Lord Jesus, if you will, I know that you and you alone are able to make me clean. And Jesus will do that. 
He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. He will cleanse you from sin. And you will have the joy of of serving Christ with your life. And so please do not let the gospel call the week after week hearing the truth of God's Word dull you to the need to turn to Christ. Don't let it harden you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need cleansing. And He is willing. He will cleanse you. We find that as Jesus cleansed The leper then, he had some instructions. Jesus cares for sinners. He cleanses sinners. But we also see that Jesus commands sinners. Verse 43, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a proof to them or as a testimony to them. Jesus issues two commands to the leper. One is a matter of timing. He tells him, see that you say nothing to anyone. The the time isn't right to spread this. There's some other things that need to take place. And, and, And there's an element here that the leper needs to follow through with the with the ceremonial cleansing as a testimony to the person of Jesus Christ before the news is spread of what Christ has done. And and we see that the leper doesn't do a very good job with that. And as a result, Jesus is restricted in his movements. And so there there was a matter of timing with the purposes of Christ's ministry. And the other is a matter of testimony He sent him to Jerusalem, and and this is part of how we know that the healing or the the cleansing was complete. It was about 100 miles away. He was sending him 100 miles away to to go and, and go through the ceremonial cleansing process as a testimony to the priest of Jerusalem that the Messiah is here, the Son of God has come, because they had never seen any leper cleansed before. And as they would go through that ceremonial cleansing process that was laid out in Leviticus, they they would have testimony that the one who heals is here. Jesus commanded, commands sinners. And as he commanded the leper, it's the same for all who come to Christ. He cleanses us, he restores us, And he is the sovereign of our lives. He commands us to follow him, to obey him as a testimony to the work that he has done in our lives. The joy of of following Christ, the joy of obedience, it is not a burden. It is a joy because in, in obedience to Christ, I'm simply declaring, I once was lost, but now I've now I'm found. I was a leper. I was incapable of serving, but now I've been cleansed and restored by the blood of the Lamb, and with joy I can serve my Savior and my God and King. Jesus commands sinners. It's important to note that although the leper failed, specifically with Jesus' instructions, he went out and spread the news 
He blazed it abroad. The leper's failure did not alter his condition. In other words, Jesus didn't say, well, you didn't obey exactly what I said, and so now you're a leper again. No, the cleansing, the cleansing is based on Christ's obedience. And we have a little foreshadowing here of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Remember, a leper is separated and segregated and, and excluded from society. This was, this was the leper's position before cleansing. And yet what we find at the end of this passage is that now Jesus is out in the desolate places. There's been an exchange that took place. The leper was once excluded, and now Jesus is on the outside. It's a foreshadowing that will ultimately be fulfilled in the cross. So what is it that Jesus does? Well, based on His substitutionary atonement, being forsaken by the Father in place of sinners, paying the infinite debt for sin, Christ cleanses those who believe in Him for the forgiveness of sin. He makes them new creatures able to joyfully obey Christ in love. And how much better is that than social equality of material things. That never saved anyone. Christ came to save sinners. That's what he does. So we've answered this question already, but just to emphasize it, who does Jesus obey? And the question is raised again because on the one hand, Simon and those who are with him are seeking Christ to come back with them. And he says, no, I, I have other priorities. But the leper comes and asks for cleansing and, and he cleanses the leper. And so who does Jesus obey? He's responding differently to Peter and differently to the leper. What determined Christ's responses and actions? And again, the passage is bookended by the fact, in verse 35, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And then in verse 45, he went out to desolate places, and in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, Luke says he would withdraw to desolate places, but Luke adds, and pray. So this passage and what Jesus is doing is surrounded by Jesus' priority to be in fellowship with his Father. He obeyed his Father. And if you would, turn back to Isaiah chapter 50, where I began this evening, Isaiah chapter 50, and, and look at that passage beginning in verse 4. Isaiah 50, beginning in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, 
that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And that's where I stopped at the beginning of of the message tonight. But verse 6 goes on and points us to the end, to the ultimate culmination of Christ's ministry. To what extent did Christ listen? To what extent did Christ obey? Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That can be nothing but the cross. Christ listened day by day by day to His Father. He glorified His Father. He obeyed His Father. And in John 17, 4, He says, I accomplished everything that, his, that, that You sent Me to do. And it culminated in obeying His Father to the laying down of His life for those whom He would redeem. In the end of this chapter, in verses 10 and 11, we have an invitation then based on what Christ did and based on Christ's obedience. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Right? That's the question. Who, who follows Christ? Well, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. As Christ relied on his Father and followed his Father, the invitation is to those who would follow Christ, to those who fear God, you trust in God as well. You follow your Savior And then in verse 11, we have a contrast. We have a warning. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. It's a gripping contrast. Christ followed his father He trusted in Him. And He invites those who fear God to trust in Him. And we're told very simply in that passage that turning away from Christ, refusing to put our trust in Christ, will be eternally destructive. Why is that? Because we need need the perfect obedience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ credited to us. We have none of our own. And so when you trust in Christ, when you cry out to Christ, you are redeemed from sin. The payment is made because of what Christ did on the cross. And and you are given, you are imputed the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that secures 
your eternal destiny in the gracious presence of God forever and ever. Because Jesus operated according to the will of the Father, He will cleanse all those for whom He died. So as Christ made it His priority to obey the Father, may the Lord give us as followers of Christ, those who are in Christ, the same, the same resolve that it would be an unassailable priority of our lives to, to constantly put ourselves under the preaching of the Word, to, to expose ourselves to the reading of the Word, that nothing would come in between the, the opportunities that we have to have our ears open to the will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to the will of our Heavenly Father. And also as we prepare to leave this passage tonight, I want to just point out for us as believers, for those who are in Christ, and we all have a burden to tell others about Christ, that in this passage we have a wonderful text to teach others of the wonder of our Savior. You, know, you can bring your Bible or open your phone and, and bring someone to this passage of Jesus cleansing the leper, and, and, and you have very simple truth that Jesus cares for sinners, that Jesus cleanses sinners and he commands sinners. It's, it's a wonderful way to present Christ to those who are lost in the darkness of sin. And it's picturesque and gripping as we see the power of Christ to cleanse. And finally, I would say to those of you who here tonight and are outside of Christ, kneel before the one who alone can restore you like the leper did. Echo his prayer, if you will, you can make me clean. Christ does pity you. He cares. And Christ will restore you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt you tonight as the heaven-sent Son of God, the eternal creator of all things, who took flesh to redeem your people from their sins. We praise you tonight that you are exalted at the right hand of God, the resurrected Son of God. Thank you for the inspired record of your words and your works on this earth that display your glory and your power to save sinners. Thank you for the patience and your pity that you show toward us who are slow, slow to learn and to obey. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that is sent to exalt your name and to strengthen us to obey your commandments. And Lord, we pray that as we eagerly await your return, that you would give us joy, that we would cling to you for the glory of God. And we pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.